your local 50k you know in in, in the in the park nearby or yeah it's likely that some of these local races go through <clears throat> terrain that you might not be able to go to on your own either because often they go through private land where mm -hmm. they've gotten special permission they've gotten permits to do that and so doing these races sometimes if you choose them right it is an opportunity to go to places that you might not be allowed to go Welcome to the Zero Quit Podcast, where we bring you inside the minds of elite athletes, business owners, specialists, and other creatives. I'm your host, Brock Covington, and through these conversations, you'll hear practical advice and effective strategies for optimizing not only your performance, but also your habits and routines as well. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend. What's going on, guys? So today, I have the pleasure of having on Jeff. I just learned the last name. Pelletier? Yeah, close enough. There we go. Jeff, close <laughs> enough. Jeff Pelletier, he's an ultra runner and filmmaker based in Vancouver. In addition to managing his own video production agency, he makes incredible videos and in storytelling on his YouTube channel where he captures a lot of his races and adventures that he does across the world. What's going on, man? How you doing, Brock? Thanks for having me on. Excited to have this uh, conversation today. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny because I followed you for about, I think, a year and a half. And uh, as I was doing a little bit more research for the podcast, I remembered how I stumbled upon your channel in the first place, because although you have like a great audience, I think it's very like under uh, appreciated in a sense, as far as like the, the audience size and things like that. And I originally found you from a, like, it was like top six headlights or choosing a headlamp for uh, ultra okay. running, things like that. And so I stumbled upon it, but I'm glad I did um, just because, you know, again, it's, it's different kind of filmmaking and take on YouTube than something like uh, Billy Yang or some of these other running documentarians uh, that cover these bigger projects and races. But you do a really great job of capturing, as we were just talking about before the podcast, lesser known races and your own adventures um, in a really high quality uh, format. And uh, recently, I want to kind of kick things off with uh, the race you just wrapped up recently. I think it's pronounced Azorsh Azor Islands, right? Yeah, the Azorish Islands off the coast. Of, they're Portuguese islands off the coast of Portugal. Yeah, yeah, and I had never heard of them before. I was telling my wife about them uh, just because, you know, I remember when you first posted a little uh, snippet of, you know, where you were racing uh, months ago. And I was like, man, these are just beautiful and stunning. And I was like, you know, as much as I feel like people in the racing community glorify UTMB, there's so many of these other different destinations across the country. And this just seemed like one of them. So I guess give, give us a little introduction to that race. Uh, you know, what was the structure of it? What was the distance and, and what drew it to, or drew you to it in the first place? Yeah, the, so the Azores Islands, they're considered the Hawaii of the Atlantic, the Hawaiian Islands of the Atlantic. Um, growing, growing up in Vancouver here, Hawaii is a pretty popular destination. It's like a four hour flight, yeah. or five hour flight rather. Uh, and it turns out it's also a five hour flight from Toronto, the other side of Canada, with direct flights to the Azores Islands. Um, and they're, and they're beautiful. I'm surprised more people don't go, but they literally are in the middle of the, of the Atlantic ocean, uh, uh, 1800 kilometers off the coast of Canada and still 1200 kilometers off the porch, uh, the coast of Portugal. So really in the middle of the, of the ocean. Um, it's, uh, it's a place of waterfalls. It's, it's lush greenery. It's, it's unlike, um, you know, some of the other islands, um, mm -hmm. around the area that are volcanic, but these are actually quite lush. And I was invited to go by the race organization. So, um, I, I was invited to go do a race there. I did a 60 K race. They also had yeah. a 110 kilometer and a 35 kilometer distance. And, um, I met the race director Lewis at, uh, UTMB actually mm -hmm. during, uh, doing a run, a shakeout run. He had been following my channel for a while and that's where I met him and he invited me. And then we talked a little bit after that. So, um, I like to mix it up. I like to I like to do these big races. I mean, UTMB is an exciting. It's an epic race. It's a it's yeah. a bucket list race for sure. Yeah. Always has been at the top of my list. 
but I love doing these little unknown events. And I guess more specifically, I like traveling to places that are a little bit less popular. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Azores Islands, I'm sure, are popular for Portuguese people and maybe French people to visit, but um, not a lot of North Americans had even heard of it. So mm-hmm. as far as telling a story and featuring it in a film, it's, it's pretty exciting. It's a good opportunity to introduce an audience to a new place. And I sometimes get feedback from people saying, like, when they watch my films, it's just like, oh, there's another place for the bucket list, right? Yeah. Like, it's just another bucket yeah. list. And that's that. I love to hear that. That's my goal. I want you to be able to binge my films and just learn about and discover new places, new races, new adventures to take on that maybe you hadn't heard of before. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you kind of drew me into a question I was going to ask later was kind of like, what is your why for a lot of the races you choose and a lot of the things you film? And it, I think, you know, you can jump off what I'm about to add here is that uh, it seems that you guide towards these places that not just are these big races, but like you said, the lesser known ones that are in these distinct locations that also have a culture and like a story to tell. Um, Specifically the ones that, you know, I want to dig way more into this later, but you know, you did the one in Namibia um, Mm -hmm. and there's just such a different environment that you're kind of immersed into, especially when you do these stage races where you're not just in and out. Um, So I guess, yeah, what, what is it about racing the planet and th- those collection of races and exploring the world that trail running has kind of given you the opportunity to do? Yeah, and I mean, and that's really it. Like trail running has given me this opportunity to visit places. I, I would even just say more locally. I mean, for us um, locally, we consider the U- United States being fairly local. You know, we yeah. can drive down to Washington, Oregon pretty easily in a weekend and um and trail running takes you to places, even even you know even within your say your state, if you're American, it can take you to towns that you would never visit, yeah. you know, because the race usually isn't in Seattle or you know or or Denver, it's in mm-hmm. Silverton, you know, it's in yeah. this old mining yeah. town or it's in or the old. So you visit these places that you would never go to otherwise, way off the beaten path, and you learn and you get immersed in a culture and a history that um, again you would never be exposed to. Um, so trail running is, is, is a great opportunity to explore your own backyard through a different lens or to take that to the next level and explore countries you might never go to. And again, in ways you might not be able to do. Uh, so Namibia was one example of that with racing the planet where, um, you know, we ran through the desert for 250 kilometers. And of course, if you visit Namibia, it's a very friendly place to visit. They call mm-hmm. it Africa for beginners. Um, but you wouldn't normally travel that far into the desert, right? Yeah. So this is something you can only do with a support structure, with a, an organization who is setting up aid stations, providing water. I mean, there's no water out there, right? So even even as a, an adventurer myself, I, I wouldn't be able to go and just fast pack that route. I wouldn't be able to mm. carry enough water. So that's a really unique experience and a, a unique chance to to explore a region of that country that I wouldn't have otherwise. And of course, yeah. while I'm there, I did do all the regular tourist stuff. Yeah. Um, but even the country of Namibia wasn't even on my radar before, mm-hmm. you know, looking, seeing that this organization had a race there and deciding to join them for that. Uh, Racing the Planet is a unique organization in that sense because their their mission, their mandate really is to take people to these really unique locations, usually deserts. Um, they, mm-hmm. they're, going to, um, they're going to the country of Jordan this year, but they also go to Mongolia. They go to... Um, uh, the Atacama Desert in Chile. Um, they go to Antarctica. So they take people to places that you wouldn't normally go. Um, and that's very different than running something like UTMB, which is a very popular route on the mm-hmm. Tour de Mont Blanc. Um, we did fast pack that route this summer before doing the race. Uh, but you definitely don't need to, you certainly don't need to r- race UTMB to do the Tour de Mont Blanc. Again, mm-hmm. unlike some of these other races. 
Um, and even on a smaller scale, I mean, your local 50K, you know, in, in, in the in the park nearby, or yeah. it's likely that some of these local races go through <clears throat> terrain that you might not be able to go to on your own either, because often they go through private land where mm -hmm. they've gotten special permission, they've gotten permits to do that. And so doing these races sometimes, if you choose them right, it is an opportunity to go to places that you might not be allowed to go on your own yeah. outside of an organized environment. Yeah, no, I, you, you hit the nail on the head, and uh, it really made me think of why I chose, uh, you know, like my first ultra marathon that I did uh, over this past, or I guess one summer in the fall, I did a 50-miler in a, a smaller mountain town called Crested Butte. Have you heard of that in Colorado? Yeah, yeah, okay. for sure. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, lesser known than a Silverton, a Telluride, you know, you're ready, these, these beautiful small mountain towns in, in Colorado, but it certainly holds its own, and it, it's a good, you know, running trail running gives you the excuse to go to these you know secluded areas these really kind of special places and like you said to run in areas that you may not actually even be allowed to at times and so it was a good chance for me to have an excuse to go run 50 miles through you know beautiful mountains beautiful terrain you know the trees are just this vivid yellow this bright green beautiful fall weather and although it like hailed and and wild storms during the race uh there's plenty of sunshine and it's just part of the experience yeah. right and uh you know, it, it just takes you places, simply put. But I wanted to bring it back to uh, the Azores Islands. So this race didn't quite go as planned. Um, so so dive into that story and and, and, no. and mention, I guess, the, the weather conditions, how it went, and uh, your takeaways from it. Yeah, so I, uh, in addition to visiting places that are maybe a little bit lesser known, I like to go in the off-season typically. And this mm -hmm. race definitely was in the off-season. It was in December, um, and it was winter there. I mean, winter there is more... It's about 15 degrees Celsius. I'm not sure what yeah. that is in Fahrenheit, but I was running in shorts and a t-shirt and then a hard shell when it rained, um, but it did rain a lot and it does tend to rain there in the winter. Mm -hmm. um, they have ferries that go between the islands, but only in the summer because in the winter, the waves are too high. The wind is too unpredictable. The, we the weather is just too unpredictable. So they cancel the ferries for, for the season. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an indication of sort of the potential for weather. And uh, unfortunately, we had a really bad bout of uh, about a week worth of wind and rain that I'm told is is an anomaly. Usually you get a couple days of rain and then a couple days of sunshine. Um, I had a couple days of sunshine when I arrived and then nothing but rain and wind for the rest of the time. <laughs> of course. Which, hey, I'm used to that coming from Vancouver, yeah. Canada. That's we right. We had a lot of yeah. rain. Uh, but it got pretty muddy and they had to reroute the course. It was so windy. We're talking mm. 75 kilometer per hour winds. Um, and uh, it, it was it was pretty hectic. It was, But it was fun. Like it, was, it, was, yeah. it made it a lot of fun. Um, well, sometimes that, I'll say that kind of takes the stress away. Like, you know, my 50 yeah. mile race around like 25 miles at past an aid station. And I was kind of in that point where I was like holding on to, okay, I'm going to, you know, still finish and, 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 and finish mm -hmm. the race. But I was teetering a little bit and then this hailstorm moves in and it was kind of like one of those moments where I just said, oh, what the hell, you know, it's, I'm already like hurting. It is what it is. This just adds to it. So it almost like releases you from that, uh, that stress and gives you a little bit of, well, I'm already here anyway. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And kind of like the, with this race, it got to a point where it was just kind of silly. Like it felt like yeah. we were just playing in the mud. And, and yeah. uh, so expectations went out the window and I just thought, okay, well, this will make fun. for a good story. It'll make for yeah. a good film. Just have fun. Unfortunately, I missed a turn, um, a critical turn. Our course, our 60K course followed the 110 kilometer course exactly. Mm -hmm aside from one little part where we're supposed to do an additional 4k loop and I missed that turn. Um, I went back to see what I, where I missed. I went back with, with Lewis, mm -hmm. the, the RD and he showed me the intersection. I'm like, well, it's so, it's so obvious. He said, yeah, there would have been arrows here. 
<laughs> um, but I think at that point it's because I was, we were on this ridge and I was getting blown off the ridge. I'm yeah. trying to hold my hat on and, you know, just anything I could do to st- be, be basically stay vertical. And yeah. so I think I was, uh, probably distracted a little bit. The irony yeah. being that I had the route on my watch, but I oh, think my anyway. watch was, uh, it was probably beeping and I probably couldn't hear it in the wind. So, yeah, yeah. no, I, I mean, that'll end up having a lot of disorientation anyway, but did I read it right that this was your first DNF? Well, my first, first DQ. Yeah. Oh, DQ. First DQ. DQ. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay. So I guess technically DNF, but it really it's I was disqualified because I only ran okay. 54, 55K instead of the, the full 60. Oh, okay. Because so, I was yeah. going to be surprised if that was your first yeah. DNF. And I was going to ask, like, you know, what was that, I guess, experience when you've had a lot of success? But but I, I guess regardless, you know, what were the takeaways from this race um, other than uh, that it was a beautiful area and, and, and a uh, an event to live through anyway? Well, I mean, I think that was, I was, I was upset with myself, you know, feeling sorry for myself for a, a bit after that until the next yeah. day. And I realized, you know, it, 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 it can happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I was a little bit embarrassed because I was invited to do the race and I'm telling yeah. this story on the video, but then I and thought well, it, it'll yeah. make for a good, <laughs> yeah, it'll make for a good story. So, yeah. um, and I kind of let myself off the hook and I realized like, this is just part of trail running. I mean, it's mm-hmm. troubleshooting. It's, uh, you know, it's kind of rolling with the punches and you, you never know what you're going to get. DNFs, DQs, you know, missing missing a turn. This is all just mm-hmm. part of the fun. Um, and if you want a perfectly flagged, you know, good weather, mm-hmm. uh, if you if you want to eliminate the variables, run a, mar- run a road race, run a marathon. Yeah. Ultra running is not about that. It's about just get going out there and doing your best with what you're given on the day, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, a perspective I had going into my race too, because I was teetering and nerves were there about 50k or 50 miler and uh you know one thing i came to that i think applies to what you just talked about is the idea that you know running is more than just that medal at the finish line it's it's the experience of the race it's seeing how far you can take yourself and that you know whether you you finish the race or whether you know you were a mile short or something like that or missed a turn you still got the crux of of why you wanted to do the race and, and the value in it in the first place right yeah, and I did go back a couple of days later and run the part that I missed. Exactly. So I got to see yeah. it on, on fresh legs and with fresh eyes. And I, <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, and it, hey, it all, you know, like I always say, it gives me something to go back for, right? It gives me exactly. a reason maybe to go back and, and run the race again. Exactly. So, you know, you do a ton of overseas races. Obviously, there's some great races and, and trails around uh, where you live in Canada. But, you know, with all the overseas races that you do, what kind of goes into that preparation? Because one thing that I just think of is like, you know, whether you're going for a week or, or this, there's so much thing, so many items to pack, so much gear to pack, uh, extra socks, extra, you know, gels, all these different things. So I guess, you know, walk, walk us through what are some of the, uh, the tips you have or the horror stories you've ran into or the trouble you've had with flying with some of these items. Yeah, no. And it definitely does complicate things, starting with the fact that, you know, again, most of us do more of our racing in our in our backyard, you know, say mm-hmm. you're driving for a few hours, maybe maximum. But the idea is you're driving. So you're filling your trunk up with stuff. So yeah. you want to bring spare shoes, throw them in the trunk. You want to bring spare poles, throw them in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, food, whatever, just throw it all in there. Um, but even for us as Canadians crossing the border to do a mm-hmm. lot of our racing, just sometimes just over the border, we might drive a couple hours. We have to think about what food we're importing, right? So right mm-hmm. away, it, it gets complicated. And as soon as you hop on a plane, it's exponentially more complicated because now you have baggage allowances. There's certain things you can you can't pack in your in your checked luggage, like lithium batteries, which includes headlamp batteries. Uh, but at the same time, you can't bring poles in your carry-on, so you got to check those. 
Uh, so things can get pretty complicated pretty quickly, mm-hmm. um, especially when you deal with lost luggage. And, yeah. um, and that's where, you know, you have to really think about, you know, you always wear your running shoes on the plane, for example, and you mm-hmm. carry on your, your essential kit. Um, and you really have to maybe research in advance, you know, what items are available on the ground. Um, when we, when I raced in the country of Georgia this summer, somebody had, uh, had lost some, some luggage and lost some gear items and mm-hmm. we were scrambling to try to help them find stuff. And unfortunately in Georgia in Tbilisi, the capital, they do have some outdoor stores, but there's not a lot available. They, mm-hmm. they import a lot of their things. They, they order on Amazon, you know, yeah. um, there certainly weren't uh, calf sleeves and things that he was hoping to find. And so um, it's definitely a consideration. My my rule of thumb for traveling internationally, especially when for us traveling through time zones, say coming from Vancouver to going to to the Alps, say that's a nine nine hour difference, yeah. is to always go about a week early. If you go about a week early, you give yourself time to um, to adjust to the time zone. They say it takes mm-hmm. about a day per hour, but also you give yourself a week to arrive, relax, kind of gather yourself, and if need be, spend a few days scrambling to find <laughs> lost gear items if your baggage yeah. is lost. If you arrive a day or two before, you're kind of screwed. You, you have no time for that. So <laughs> if you can afford it, you got to give yourself that week. Um, it just, get, again, gives, your, gives yourself, it gives you time to settle in and, and make sure that you're relaxed and set up yeah. for success. Because when you're racing internationally, you're often racing against locals who don't mm-hmm. have that extra those extra challenges of time zone changes, Um, maybe environmental, you know, heat to acclimate to. Mm -hmm. And of course the gear and all the extra stress that comes with that. And I would actually say though, that that kind of all starts with how you pick your races. Um, Mm -hmm. If you want to perform your best, you know, if you, if you're a more competitive athlete, you're probably better off to race locally. And if you do want to step it up, maybe, you know, as North Americans say, if you want to go to the Alps where mountain running is very competitive, Mm -hmm. you might want to look at moving there for a couple of months and settling in and, and trying to become a local mm-hmm. train on the terrain and, and avoid the travel. Uh, because as soon as you add in the, those time changes and the fatigue and all the stress of traveling, you're already at a disadvantage. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's less of a worry. I often, you know, I'm not an uber competitive racer, you know, I'm mm-hmm. good for a top 10 percentile finish, but uh, for me, it's sort of worth that sacrifice of uh, the risk of traveling. Uh, mm-hmm. But again, for some people it might not be, you really have yeah, to, you like, really have to yeah. consider all those, all those variables. Yeah, it's like if running 100 miles wasn't hard enough, then you got to add in all the acclimation, lost luggage, uh, all these things. Uh, One last note about overseas. Have you ever experienced uh, food poisoning or water poisoning um, or or things like that? Because I know, you know, some countries uh, don't have, you know, exactly the same either clean water access or, or, you know, you're not used to eating those kinds of foods. So what experience have you had with that? Yeah, I, I have. I, uh, I've uh, several times I was, but not usually for races. I've been lucky that I haven't had a race get jeopardized for that. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, I've, I got sick in Peru. I got sick in Mexico, El Salvador. Um, I even <laughs> got sick in France recently. Yeah. Um, something I didn't, uh, so I made a film, but we, we fast packed the tour de Mont Blanc about three mm-hmm. weeks before running UTMB so that it's the same route. And we wanted to see the route during the day and, and really soak it all in before doing it during the race. And uh, something that didn't make it into my film was that I actually got food poisoning the last night. And um, uh, I didn't want to end the film on a down on a downer. <laughs> I didn't want that to yeah. become the focus. So I, I, I decided in the moment, this is not going to make it into the story. Um, I always say films like that, they're not, it's, documentaries aren't truth telling, they're storytelling. And you get That's to right. sometimes have some liberty with the story. Um, we were at this refuge and I ate... I, it must have been a sausage or something that was a little bit undercooked. I was the only one who got sick, but with food, it's actually food intoxication, they call it, when there's bacteria mm-hmm. um, that doesn't get cooked out of the food. 
And basically, you just need to puke until that gets out of your system. <laughs> and I was up yeah. all night. I was up all night. And, it, and I woke up in the morning. Or I was up in the morning when Audrey woke up. And she's yeah. like, how'd you sleep? And I'm like, are you serious? You didn't hear me? Not at all. I was yeah. out back puking. All, like I didn't, I didn't sleep at all. Yeah. So then at that point, I had nothing in my system from the night before. I couldn't eat breakfast. And we had about 20 kilometers to, to finish off on mm -hmm. the route with a pretty big climb. I had like no water in my system either. And it was a hot day on a hot route, um, like an exposed route, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, it was the hardest 18 kilometers I've ever run. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't know it from the film because every time I had to shoot, I had to suck it up and go, okay, let's look pretty. You know, let's play <laughs> this up for the camera a little bit. And I'm trying yeah. to get footage and I'm just suffering. Yeah. And I now know what it's like, you know, when people puke or they, they have an upset stomach mm. during a hundred miler nice. and they can't yeah. eat for hours. I now know what that feels like. And it's mm. horrible. It's horrible. Um, but fortunately, that's never happened to me during a race. That was just during a sort of a fun run. We could have bailed out if we had to, um, yeah. but I was able to push through. Uh, but it was horrible. Um, I do actually, though, take, um, um, I can't remember what it's called, but there is a, a medication that's available here in Canada anyway uh -huh. that's... Um, can help you with uh, traveler's diarrhea. Um, okay. It can help you avoid that. Yeah. Uh, it's something I take whenever, I, for sure, whenever before I travel to a third world country. Yeah. Um, but it's just that's one of the risks, you know. It's one of the risks of traveling, eating new foods. Um, Part yeah, of the game, for sure. Yeah. Part <laughs> of the game. Yeah. So with uh, your year of races, how do you go about planning that? Because obviously you work with Solomon, you have your own personal mm -hmm. um, interests. You know, you try and run, I believe, some races with Audrey as well. Uh, and then you mentioned yeah. sometimes getting invited to these races. So how do you kind of structure your calendar year of races? Well, I mean, first of all, I try to pack in as much as possible. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm lucky that I have a flexible schedule with running my own business. Um, I can work remotely and mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not quite a full-time job. So I have time to do other things. Um, and so the first thing I do is sort of, you know, I'll come up with a list of priorities for the year. I'm balancing out maybe at this point, now that our channel has got some traction, I get invited to different events and mm -hmm. I balance that out with my existing goals. Um, sometimes there's overlap there. Sometimes there isn't. Um, and, uh, yeah, we look, I look at what Audrey's goals are for the year and we, we kind of just kind of lay it all out and try to make it work. It's like a puzzle, right? Mm -hmm. So this coming year is a good example of a pretty complicated season, uh, that we're trying to sort of we're, right now we're in the process of trying to figure it all out and make it all work. Um, something I didn't execute well on last year was I did a lot of traveling. My carbon footprint was quite high. So I'm trying mm -hmm. to lessen that for this year. We're going to Europe once. I'm going for mm -hmm. three and a half months and I'm going to stay there. I'm going to live there and then come back in the fall instead of traveling around like I did this year. Uh, Is that a way that overseas. you can kind of uh, that was bundle a, things all together once? You could do maybe multiple races while you're in Europe. Yeah. Is that the idea? Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's, it's not just even about that. It is, it is also about limiting the amount of travel. Yeah. Like it's going to cost me more. I mean, traveling that is expensive, but renting yeah. housing is also expensive. So, yeah. uh, but in this case it's, yeah, it's limiting the amount of back and forth, uh, flying I'm doing. Um, mm -hmm. this last year kind of, it, it kind of was coming, it, it, I was planning it as I went. I didn't sort of have my year mapped out in the same way. Mm -hmm. And so this year I'm trying to, again, lessen my carbon footprint a little bit if I can. Um, and then also, yeah, I mean, it'll give me an opportunity to pack in a little bit more because, um, Traveling is it's hard on the body, and you've got to you got to work your training around it. So, uh, we're going to try to pack it in this year. Um, it's I think also about whenever you're looking at it, this goes for anybody looking at a schedule. You have to have A and B races. And not yeah. everything can be of the same importance. Mm -hmm. So I have one A race for this year. That's gonna I'm looking at possibly doing in October, and then I have a bunch of B goals that are kind of leading up to that. And I'm considering the rest of those as just training. 
And I think the reason it's important to know that kind of going in is if something was to happen, if I was to feel myself getting injured or, or maybe it just doesn't go as planned, one of those mm-hmm. B goals, and that's fine. Those are just B goals. And I got to focus on the main goal, that A goal for the year. Um, I think the mistake some of us make is we have a bunch of A goals. We have a bunch of A races we want to do. And we try to pack that all into a single season. Yeah. And it can be too much. It can be too stressful. It can be too hard on the body. It can lead to injury, um, which is actually where a coach comes in, I think, well. Um, I do rely on a coach usually to help me with my programming because I like having a, a, an outside perspective on how to structure my training. And then I can just trust it, trust the plan and just work the plan and not be always second guessing myself. Yeah. Um, but, but a coach can also provide perspective on maybe, maybe your goals are too aggressive. You're trying to pack in too much and they can be that, that voice to say, you know, maybe you want to pick two out of three of these races mm-hmm. and just, and just do them well instead of doing more and, and yeah. doing it less well. Yeah. I think that's great advice on prioritization and just figuring out, yeah, what's, what's of the most importance and then working your way down from that because Otherwise, you kind of are setting yourself up yeah. for uh, just failure if you're if you're setting your expectations extremely high and anything less than that, you know, feels like failure to yourself. Uh, are you at liberty to say what that A yeah. goal in uh in the fall is? I'm still I not yet, not yet. I'll, um, I'm still working it out with the the race director, and it's sort yeah. of um, yeah, yeah. So in a, in no a couple worries. of weeks, I'll have I'll have hopefully my plan solidified. But I can talk about my first sort of it's a it's a more of a beagle um, yeah. leading up to that race, which is I'm going to go to England for the month of June, and I'm going to the Lake District, and I'm going to expose myself to to fell running for the first time. I'm going to do a couple fell races, and I'm going to recce the what Bob Graham for, Round uh... course. So the Bob Graham Round is um, oh, the fell race. It's a route that. Oh, sorry. So fell running is basically trail running, but it's doing it in the fells in the UK. They call okay. it fell running. It's a little bit different though, because it tends to be, it tends to be off route. It's okay. kind of run up that hill and then run back down and find the most effective route you can without breaking your ankle. And the huh. terrain is, you know, rooty, it's rocky and, and grassy and marshy. Technical, yeah. um, okay. you're, it's technical, but not technical. Like there's, you yeah, know, it's not, sense. it's not, it's off trail quite, okay. quite often. So it's a yeah. whole different thing. Um, honestly, I don't really know what to expect. All I know is that some of these runners are pretty fast and I'm probably going to get my, my butt kicked. Yeah. But it'll be fun. And then I'm going to recce the, the route for the Bob Graham round, which is my main goal there. And that's a 106-kilometer route going over 38 peaks. Um, these aren't massive mountains, not like mm-hmm. we have you know, here um, in Vancouver, for example. These are, they're a little bit lower, but they are all of a certain height. Uh, they're considered Monroe's, which is mm-hmm. a, minimum, a minimum height requirement. And you have to do all 38 of these peaks in uh, under 24 hours to be recognized as a, as a Bob Graham round uh, mm-hmm. completionist. So that's my goal. And I'm going to film the whole process. I'm going to recce the course. Um, I, you know, I want to really get to know the, the route and, and the peaks and probably do some fast packing, some camping while I'm there. And then I'll run that um, on or around my 42nd birthday um, the, that, at the end of the month there, at the end of June. Uh, Bob Graham was 42 when he ran when he first did the round Mm -hmm. and it's a very common thing for people to do it in their 42nd year. So that's gotcha. Well, I'll have to, I'll have to look forward to watching that later on. I want to dig into the, uh, Namibia series because I was just so drawn into it because one, I'd never heard of the country in the first place. Um, and then two, it was such a high quality, just discovery channel level. I think that's what I actually commented on the video. And a lot of people were commenting the same thing was like the, the production quality of it and the storytelling was just phenomenal. Uh, and it was so immersive, not in just the race, but the people you had characters and, and specific, you know, racers you were covering throughout the series. So, uh, I guess 
break down how you got into running that race and, and I guess just lay the groundwork for that race in general. Uh, well, first of all, thank you. And I, I'm, I'm really proud of that, that video series. Like I think it came together really well, pretty much how I envisioned it. Um, the, this all started with um, a conversation with the organization about my potentially doing their series. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I had reached out to them uh, to express interest and show them my work. And um, part of what I was looking for was somebody to partner with in terms of how I was going to actually approach the filming. Mm -hmm. um, I was looking at a few similar races as well, um, namely um, um, Marathon de Sable in Morocco, which is actually what these races are modeled after. Mm -hmm. It's a very popular stage race that runs through the, the desert in Morocco. Um, but that's a massive event, and I knew it would be harder to sort of partner with the organizers, whereas with the Racing the Planet being a little bit more grassroots, mm -hmm. uh, the event sizes are smaller, the fields are, are smaller. Uh, what they agreed to, and they were excited to help me with, is that they would carry some additional equipment for me. I was going to ask. So these that, races yeah. are seven days. Yeah, these races are seven days and you've got to carry all your stuff. So I'm talking mm -hmm. all your food, all your any any spare clothing, you you know, all your emergency supplies. You're carrying that all for the entire week. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing you don't carry is a tent. They provide that. So the name of the game is like, how few calories can you get away with during mm -hmm. the week? You know, what's what's the lightest gear you can bring? How dirty are you willing to get? Because, mm -hmm. you know, you're not changing your clothes. Um, so. I, 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 of course, then couldn't be carrying a bunch of heavy camera equipment. Yeah. Um, I was, though, carrying a GoPro and, you know, some spare batteries. Mm -hmm. um, but I knew to really execute, you know, on a, on a well-polished film, I'd want to have a higher quality camera to use mm -hmm. in the mornings and, and in the afternoons and evenings um, after I'm done racing, as well as my drone. Mm -hmm. And so they agreed to carry my camera bag for me in between stages. Um, it didn't affect my racing at all. I still carried all my mandatory gear. Mm -hmm. Plus, they had their own drone operators who were able to give me footage from during the race itself. That's convenient. And yeah. that was huge. That was huge. It wouldn't, the, the film series wouldn't have been nearly what it was without that footage. Mm -hmm. um, it was, and because these landscapes are incredible, right? It's, yeah. just, it's like another planet. And it's the only and, way to uh, really capture it. it. You know, you can't just capture yeah. it just on, on ground. You do need that aerial view. Totally, because especially with the GoPro, I mean, it's kind of all you see is a horizon quite yeah. often. I mean, there are some interesting rock formations, but there's a beauty in the vastness, the emptiness of desert, mm -hmm. right? It's, 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 you know, mountains are one thing, but deserts are beautiful in their own way as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the drone footage really brought that to life. And so that was the other reason I was so excited to work with them is they were, you know, they were perfectly willing to give me all that footage. And the drone operators even took a little bit of creative direction from me as far as mm -hmm. what I was looking for. Um, and then we did a similar approach here in, in the country of Georgia with my second event with them, mm -hmm. whereas I was able to get this drone footage, which, you know, again, really brings the, the race to life. Um, so that's something that I'm looking forward. You know, that's that's sort of the way I'm looking to work with race organizers in the first place, or, or mm -hmm. I should say in the, in the future, um, is, uh, you know, the, it's it's not just about helping to offset costs where I yeah. can. It's, it's also about having that partnership where they're willing to help me bring that story to life. Mm -hmm. um, and usually that does mean getting some drone footage as kind of a, uh, one of the main things. Uh, you compare that to a race like UTMB that I just did. I mean, there was, mm -hmm. I didn't partner with that organization. They're a massive organization. Um, they, don't, they don't yet know who I am, and it's hard <laughs> to get a hold of their PR team. Of course. Um, maybe one day. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the, you know, we still, I think, told a compelling story, um, but the production values weren't quite there like they yeah. would have been um, had I been able to get some of the, say, the drone footage, for example. Yeah, well, I think it's a win-win because obviously you, you get a chance to, like you said, more than just offset costs, produce really high-quality films and, and produce it 
uh, the way you want without sacrificing on, on quality or, you know, j- just the hassle of trying to do that while actually doing the race itself. And then also they yeah. get the win and the benefit of, you know, having a great uh, film brought to or, or capturing that event. And then also having that, you know, showcased and the attention brought to people like me who may have never heard of the race in the first place. So with Namibia, you had to carry a lot of gear. What was the pound did you had to carry on you on uh, on you at all times again? So, uh, well, the minimum requirements are for a minimum of 2000 calories per day. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think I carried about 16,500 calories in total. Mm-hmm. My food weight, uh, this is going back a ways, but I think my food weight was around five or six pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course that gets lighter as you go. Of course. Yeah. And then my, um, my gear as well, there's all this required gear you need. And so mm-hmm. again, the name of the game is to invest in lightweight gear, light stuff. Yeah. I have a bit of an ultra light kind of hiking and fast packing background. So for me, that was, I had most of the gear I needed. Um, and I did a stage race quite a few years ago, my first one where I had to buy some stuff then. So I'm lucky in that I had a lot of that stuff where some mm-hmm. people, it's, you know, these races are a significant investment, especially if you're only doing one of them. So, mm-hmm. um, but I was lucky in that I had a lot of that stuff. So my, my pack weight going into the race uh, would have been around... 15, I think 15 and a half pounds, around mm-hmm. seven kilograms, including my food. And then that would have got a little bit lighter. My base weight was probably more like nine pounds. Because as I said, I think I had about six pounds of food. Um, plus water. So yeah. at times when I had a full liter and a half, I was at about 18 to 18 and a half pounds, I believe. Which is approaching the limit. Um, I think you want to be between 15 to 20 pounds when you're fast packing. 15 mm-hmm. is great or less. Um, I usually try to get down to 12 or 13 if I'm doing just a weekend, Yeah. Uh, 15 if you're doing more than a few days. But when you get up to 20 pounds, it's hard to run. Your pack well, is... Yeah, that's what I noticed in the video. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're jogging gonna... at that point. So, And some people had very heavy packs yeah. where you know, you, you can do these races. Uh, you, can, you can hike them. You can walk them. The cutoff times are generous enough. Um, mm-hmm. But if you want to be competitive, it's it, it's... I wouldn't say it's a causational relationship, but there's definitely a correlation between... Yeah. The pack weight and the the the, run, the winning times. Um, generally, the winner has the lightest pack. Yeah, I was going to ask. So, since you've done backpacking in the past, had you did you feel like your body was uh, able and had the the strength kind of me- or background to withstand that weight, or did you feel like your lower back was fatiguing a lot earlier on? You mentioned that running became a lot more difficult. I guess what was that experience, or, or were you used to that in the past? Yeah. And it's, I wouldn't say it's not even just about strength. I mean, you can get strength in the gym. You don't need to train with, with a heavy pack necessarily, but it's, it's more about the, your running form changes when you have a heavy pack, which is why I think it is important to run with your pack. And again, it's not just about strength. It's about getting used to how you're going to have to run. It's very different. Um, it's more of a a stride. It's more of a shuffle, right. (laughs) Than, than, than maybe the bouncier run that you might be used to. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I did some long, especially leading up to Georgia. Now for Namibia, I didn't actually train specifically for that race. Yeah. That was an, that was a B race for me. I tacked it on to the end of my season. Mm-hmm. Um, but for Georgia, I targeted that race and I did some long runs up to about 60 kilometers. Um, uh, what is that? 35 miles, maybe Something like 34 that. miles yep. and, uh, with a, a fully loaded pack, um, or at least a partially loaded pack. So I did a few very long runs with packs. Um, and I really trained specifically at the right pace. I was choosing my terrain to mimic what the race environment would be. And my results reflected that. Like I, yeah. I trained uh, appropriately and I, I, I placed much higher um, second place instead of fourth place at Namibia. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but uh, yeah, so leading into going into Namibia, the one thing I did have though was I had done a, quite a bit of fast packing that season. Okay. So again, not not training specifically for that race. It just happened that that's something I, I, I do yeah. quite a bit of. Yeah. yeah. To wrap up with Namibia or Namibia. Uh, the story that I thought was very captivating and interesting within the, the overall story was uh, Vladimir mm-hmm. Dos Santos. And uh, so do you yeah. want to touch on his story and, and your experience talking to him and, and hearing what, what he was doing? Yeah, Vladimir is a super inspiring runner from uh, Brazil, and uh, he's a blind runner. And so he runs with a guide, meaning somebody is helping him. You know, he's obviously doing the physical part, but somebody mm-hmm. le- leading him through the terrain. And some of the terrain is fairly technical. Um, so it's a real challenge and, uh, he's done, I believe now all of the four deserts, they call it the four desert series, Mm. uh, with racing the planet, as well as a couple of the, um, special edition races they do, um, and a whole bunch of other stuff as well, but he's actually a fast runner too. He's not just a long distance guy. Mm. He's, uh, he's pretty well known back home and, uh, he, he has some, I believe some records for like, for example, running around the track um, as a blind runner, um, and a few different things. Uh, so yeah, he's a really inspiring guy. Um, really nice guy too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, I'd love to work with him again and tell his story a little bit more in depth. You do, you do meet him in the film. Yeah. Um, but I'd love one day to guide him through a race yeah. and, you know, work with him on that and maybe even visit him at his home and see how he trains. And, um, he, he unfortunately doesn't come from, you know, he, he doesn't have the best economical, uh, situations. Mm-hmm. So he does look for support and, uh, I think it'd be a good way to maybe drum up some support for him as well. So so that's definitely on my radar to try to work with him in the near future and tell his story a little bit more. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, a lot of people were, were touched by his story for sure. And, and you know, that was something that with the Race in the Planet series, um, uh, the Namibia series, I should say specifically, mm-hmm. y- y- like I met so many really inspiring athletes um, without giving it away. Uh, Rob's story is probably for me the most inspiring, just given what mm-hmm. he went through and then how he performed in that race yeah. um, and at his age. Um, and so, you know, and, and that's the thing about these stage races that's so different than a trail race, even a hundred mile race. Mm-hmm. I mean, you meet people on, on, on the trail, right? Whether it be UTMB or your local 50 K mm-hmm. you, you do get to know people on the trail. Um, at least I think you should, I always encourage people like make friends early cause you might need them towards the end of the <laughs> race, the road, yeah. right? You might end up teaming up with them to get through. Um, but those, those relationships, I mean, it's, it's they only go so deep, right? Because you're only out there for maybe that one night or for a few mm-hmm. hours together. Um, whereas with a stage race, you're running together and then you have all afternoon and evening to sit around the campfire mm-hmm. day after day for seven days. And so you really get to know people. You become, re- you know, you make some really good friends. And then a lot of these racers, they, they do multiple of these races and they see they see the same people over and over faces, again. So you, yeah. So you, yeah, so you further strengthen those bonds. And so that's where stage racing is so di- it's such a different experience. It's you're really immersing yourself yeah. in an environment. You're cut off from communication at home. I mean, you mm. can get emails, but you know that's it. Like, there's no cell phones allowed, and yeah. which is great, right? How often do we get to unplug to that exactly. degree? Well, that's seven days. <laughs> I've said that for with so a group, long. a great group of people, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. That's honestly that's what like running does for me, even on like a road running level, because mm-hmm. you are you, like, you can't pull out your phone and text or, or scroll on Instagram no. while you're running, right? You have to be no. in the moment and present. And as much as I, I have a lifting background and love lifting, a lot of times you have this, you know, purposeful rest periods. And a lot of times people mm-hmm. do pull out their phone. It's easy to check, check an email or this or that, but running, you're fully immersed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, no, I, I, I get that completely. And uh, drawing to a little bit 
besides the racing, a lot of the other things you do in the background that um, I was slightly aware of or, or assumed, but you know, hearing more about is uh, you manage your own video production agency. You also yeah. have, uh, is it still active? I was trying to like dig into it, Pacer Films? Uh, sort of a sort of a brand that I okay. um, sort of on the side kind of makes films for brands as well, okay. running related gotcha. content. But gotcha. uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of, you know, I... Uh, I, I built my business, my, my agency for, mm -hmm. well, it's been 18 years now. Um, pretty much my entire working career has been focused on building this business. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm lucky now that it's become something that affords me the freedom to travel. I have a great team in place, um, a good business partner. And um, so it's it's really p finally paying dividends in terms yeah. of not, not necessarily just money, but in terms of freedom, in terms of time. And that's really yeah. what I... That's really what I value more than money. I mean, it's, what's, what's money without time, right? Exactly. And, uh, and so you know, but that's always been making, telling other people's stories. And I don't mean, I should say really telling business stories. It's, it's, yeah. it's making videos for businesses. And, and I, I knew I wanted to, with my time, I wanted to rededicate myself to my craft because with that work, I'm, I'm mostly just managing a team. I'm not actually touching a camera and, and getting to work in the edit suite, which is yeah. why I started that business in the first place. And, um, I realized that I don't want to just make other films for like, say Nike, although I'd love to make a, you know, I'd sure I'd like to make, like to make sure, a yeah. commercial for Nike or whoever, but I want to tell my own stories as well or mm -hmm. tell other people's stories, but through my own lens, through my own, uh, you know, my own sort of perspective. Yeah. And so that's, I think what separates my content a little bit is that, you know, from say Billy, Lan Billy Yang's mm -hmm. like, um, you know, I'm friends with Billy and his content's amazing. Uh, but often it's more about other people's stories and he doesn't insert himself. Mm-hmm into the story, uh, which, you know, I think is, um, is a, it makes for really great films about other runners. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think where, what I wanted to do at least for the next couple of years is tell my own story, mm -hmm. um, or at least again, through my perspective. So what's it like to run one of these races from on the ground, a yeah. firsthand perspective, because not a lot of people are doing that, or at least not a lot of people I don't think are doing that well. They're not sort yeah. of, you know, um, and so I think that's what sort of differenti differentiates my content a little bit. Mm -hmm. But at some point it does get a little bit like uh, repetitive. And that's mm -hmm. where I do like to bring in other people's stories. And I think with that Namibia series that I might have hit on something there where, you know, maybe it's me meeting other people along the way and incorporating their story. But the through line is that it's my it's my story as an athlete, um, which will evolve over time, I'm sure. Um, and then one day I might go back to, you know, this idea of producing content for brands or yeah. telling other people's stories exclusively. But for now, I'm really enjoying this idea of like, you know, how can I tell a firsthand perspective yeah. from the ground from a race like UTMB, which you don't you don't see quite often. Yeah. Uh, we're used to the slicker films. And again, we're used to Billy's films that are tend to be more about the elite athletes. And mm -hmm. I think people would like to see, you know, what does it look like from closer to the mid pack? Yeah. The average folk. And also, you know, yeah. even uh, from a first person view, you know, that's also what you provide, I think. Yeah. 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 And I really resonate with what you were, were saying because on a smaller scale, um, for reference, I come from a video editing background as well. Got into it, you know, really young age, making fun films, blah, blah, as a kid, developed these skills. Fast forward to mm -hmm. now, I've worked for uh, various hundreds of different real estate agents across the country. I work from home. Um, done that for about five years. And to your point, it offers you a ton of flexibility, which I love and appreciate. But there does need to be that balance, right, of, you know, 
okay, money and, and, and career and things like that, but also still having that passion to make content that you're excited about and proud about. So I've kind of been in that process a little bit. I was in Virginia, uh, just moved to Colorado uh, over the summer. And part of separating myself uh, and, and making this big move in my life was a little bit of uh, trying to give myself more freedom and time to devote towards different passions, towards different projects, and, and just see where things can take me. Because a lot of times you can kind of get bogged down in the work and, and fear that if you give that up, that you're not going to be able to get it back later, you know? Because I owned a, a, a gym, a strength training gym back in Virginia for like two years. And, you know, it, it was a, a, a goal at the time, you know, to open this thing and make it successful. But I realized at this point it was, it was kind of sucking a little bit of the life out of me. And I had my hands in too many pots, basically. And yeah. so to, to bring things all together, uh, it's good to hear your perspective and, you know, honestly look at you as a case study of, hey, you can pull back a little bit and, and carve out more time for creative endeavors. And, and honestly, it'll end up probably coming back full circle with financial benefit in the long run and, and be more fulfilling in that way. Yeah. And, you know, saying no to things is something yeah. I think everybody struggles with. Um, I definitely try to see, I've always seen my career and try to approach things from a, a perspective of abundance yeah. um, as opposed to a scarcity mindset. And that allows you to say no to things, to realize that, you know, like you said, there's a fear, especially when you're a freelancer, say, yeah. um, as well as when you're running a business, there's always a fear that that next client might not be around the corner. Yeah. And so you need to say yes to everything and, and make, and uh, you, nailed you, know, it. Yep. you need to, <laughs> you, you need to work with every client that comes through the door. And I think after a while, when you realize that that's not the case, if you try to operate from a, an abundance mindset, mm -hmm. start to focus on what matters and prioritize, do more, do less, but better, do better work, focus on the work that's really important to you and making a difference and not just chasing dollars. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's when things come together. Um, and that applies again. It, it's like what we talked about with your, with scheduling your, your, your calendar for racing and, yeah. you know, it's really prioritizing and, and thinking about, you know, maybe you don't do as much and travel as much, um, focus on a couple of goals instead and just do them well. Um, maybe prioritize time for friends and family as well outside of running, which is mm -hmm. something I struggle with. Um, I tend to be quite focused on my running and, um, and maybe don't leave time for other things. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that it's this, it's, you know, I always say how, how you do anything is how you do everything. And yeah. so the way you approach business and life and your relationships, it's kind of all the same. Yeah. Pivoting to, uh, actually filming a lot of these feats and races themselves, uh, Maybe not the the higher quality prominent races you you film, but you know regular weekly diaries and things like that that you capture on YouTube. What are some equipment that you use or that you would recommend to someone uh, that is looking to capture more of their training, their races, and things like that? Well, the first thing I'd say is uh, keep it simple. Yeah. Um, focus on story, um, and I say this as a professional who has access to some very high quality gear that I don't use, like gear from our agency. Um, and when I, when I made some purchases initially, um, when I started to put my kit together, um, as I was traveling more to make films for my YouTube channel, I was very conscious in, in, in not bogging myself down. Um, sometimes higher quality gear takes longer to set up. It's more mm -hmm. cumbersome. It's, it's heavier. Uh, it's, it's less weather resistance. I mean, there's all these reasons sometimes to keep it simple. So for me, that you, that means almost sh shooting almost exclusively on a GoPro. Mm -hmm. Even again, even though I have these higher quality cameras, um, I, I have some friends who came from more professional backgrounds, and as they started doing filming their own adventures as well, some of them runners, um, they fell into that trap of thinking they needed to bring their big, you know, DSLR. They probably with found them out and, real quick, didn't they? 
<laughs> it holds you back, right? Yeah. It holds you back and it changes. Um, my goal is always to try not to change the experience too much. So the fact that I'm filming an adventure, I don't want that to affect the adventure negatively. Mm -hmm. I don't want to change this, the nature of that experience if I can. Uh, some, sometimes it's inevitable. We end up, you know, faking some shots and doing mm -hmm. pickups or whatever. Um, but, uh, it's gotta be simple. Uh, GoPro again is, you know, I can pull it out of my pocket, press a button and it's recording. I don't have mm -hmm. to worry about focus and exposure. It's automatic. Um, and as a professional, that's painful. Sometimes I want to be able to rack focus. And, um, <laughs> but in that moment, I mean, if you've been on feet for 20 hours and you're racing mm -hmm. and you're exhausted, you, you gotta be able to keep it simple. You gotta focus on what you're actually there to do, which is to, to run and maybe enjoy yourself or to compete, whatever it is. Yeah. And the filmmaking comes second. So um, GoPro for me is the standard. Now, having said that, there are some settings and things I, I've used that I think definitely improve the quality um, without getting too technical. That's sort of, you know, that's where, you know, there is, uh, there's even technique to how do you hold the GoPro and film. I was going to ask, like, there's like the same three angles that I typically will use if I'm filming for, you know, an Instagram yeah. shadow. So that I didn't know if you had specific ones or tips or go-tos with that. Well, it's, it's funny. My, I, I sometimes laugh at my own content. I get back. I'm like, it's so formulaic. You know, I've yeah. got the POV shot. Well, you know, I've it got works. The reverse I guess. angle. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, I've got the shot of somebody else. I've got, <laughs> you know, my feet, I've got the panning shot. Yeah. Um, but that helps though too. So this is, you know, continuing on this idea of keeping it simple. It's finding formulas. It's finding shorthand, right? Mm -hmm. Shortcuts. And for me, that, that also is, I build my story in the shooting, I shoot for the edit. Mm -hmm. So when I get to the edit suite, I, I don't go, how am I going to edit this? I know I go, yep, there's my establishing shot. There's, mm -hmm. I cut to my feet. I, you know, I might like look to the right and I'll do that on purpose. And then I cut to a shot of mm -hmm. my angle from the right. And I'm doing all those in the moment without thinking, cause I've just been doing it for so long. And then when I hit the edit suite, I just piece it together. It's, it just falls into place. So for most and of your races, that comes to, with time, right? Yeah. Not to cut you off for most of your races. Yeah. Are you, planning out at least vaguely the shots you want to hit or you kind of just as you're doing the race oh that's a pretty view i'm going to get that or oh this is a hard steep part i'm going to capture that yeah it's it depends so if i've done the route before i i i probably okay. will plan it and this this includes even just when i'm filming an adventure if it's if i've done the adventure before which is a best case scenario then i know going into it what shots i want to get yeah uh, utmb was a good example because we filmed it during the tour de Montblanc. And I was making mental notes as I went like, okay, mm -hmm. this is where I'm going to do. And yeah. in fact, I'm going to probably cut a film together, sort of a tongue in cheek comparison between the two, mm -hmm. like TMB and UTMB, because I filmed them in such, in so much the same way. Like a lot of the shots are carbon copy because yeah. I used the Tour de Mont Blanc as a way, as sort of a, a dry run for the UTMB. So then when I was back there, I remembered, oh yeah, this was the place where I was going to film a slow-mo shot revealing the view that I know is coming up now. Mm -hmm. So I could change my frame rate to slow-mo and make sure there's a runner in front of me that I can film running. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely kind of plan that out. I also sort of script out my scenes. I mean, again, this is about storytelling, right? Yeah. So I try to hit certain key moments and I sort of know like, yeah, okay, around this point, I'll do a little check-in. And at this point, I'll, you know, there, there's themes I might want to hit. Mm -hmm. I might want to talk about um, like I might want to talk about the aid stations or the weather, or, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of plan that in advance to a degree. Um, I'll sometimes even like almost script it. I'll yeah. have like a cheat sheet, a list on my phone sometimes of things I want to say. Um, so yeah, so certainly to, to, uh, depending on the race, um, and if I've, if I've been there before, I'll do that mm -hmm. to a more of a degree. 
Um, and then I was going to say though before, so I use GoPro primarily, but I've started incorporating an Insta360 as well, a 360 camera, yeah. I should say really more generally. And that's where that's provided me with a different angle. Mm -hmm. um, and so well, I, I see a lot of people a, have, have, you know, I, I, I don't know, you can correct me if the GoPro can do it as well, but a lot of yeah. people I know will use the Insta360 because it has that, you know, invisible stick type of deal going on. Yeah, it's got the invisible, invisible selfie stick. It's yeah. also just a nice wide angle. So yeah. I find that whenever I want to show me in in a place if i want to show how mm -hmm. narrow a ridge is and then it's best to show that from above or if i want to yeah. show me bushwhacking it's hard to get that on a narrow gopro but if yeah. i can zoom you know it's almost like having a drone above you yeah uh then i find the 360 works well but but you know i made a video about this where the 360 i think can be overused mm -hmm. so i see the 360 camera as being like a drone in that it can be too much of a good thing sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that the power of a camera like that is to use it sparingly. And then when you do cut to that angle, it's like, oh, wow, what's this, right? As yeah. opposed to filming an entire 45-minute video with that distorted wide angle, which can get a little bit nauseating after a while. Yeah. Can't have ice cream for so, every meal. <laughs> no, exactly. There you go. So, so I think that's, again, keeping it simple is starting with the GoPro and then layering in these additional angles, yeah. drones, um, you know, 360 cameras, um, but kind of building on that over time. But first and foremost, it's story. And this is all about, you know, storytelling also is about, it's, it's telling a story visually. So mm -hmm. it's not just telling a story as in literally narrating. Uh, it's visual storytelling. So for me, again, it's, I'll think about consciously in the moment. If, I'm, if I stop and talk to the camera, I'll film a shot of my feet walking and starting to run again. Because I, I wanna tell you that, okay, now I'm running again. And then when I cut to the POV shot, it mm -hmm. feels like I'm running. Whereas if I cut right from my face to POV, it feels like I'm still walking. So, you know, thinking about I, I, when I film my feet, it's usually because I want to show you, okay, now I'm walking. Okay, now I'm running again. Or now I'm on muddy terrain. Those are very conscious decisions when I cut to that angle. Um, or if I, if I show, you know, a reverse angle, it's, I'm, I'm trying to show that oh, there's somebody right behind me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm, I'm saying it in that moment for a reason. So thinking about how you tell the story visually it's almost like you know you, you and and as well what the scenes are structuring your story in scenes um it's easier done in retrospect because you'll know how your race went for example you yeah. can say like okay well i had this is i went out part. too hard for the first <laughs> yeah i went out too yeah. hard for the first 25k i blew up my stomach got upset and then I rallied and I passed a bunch of people and finished. Mm -hmm. So if you think about that sort of story structure, those are each moments, those are scenes that you yeah. need to that you need to document. And you, you wanna build up some dramatic tension. Maybe you wanna foreshadow. I, I coached Audrey in this heading into UTMB. I reminded her, if, if you feel like you have like a, a sort of a, a tight hamstring, mm -hmm. talk about that on camera because you never know. I said, yeah. heaven forbid, like, later on you might have to drop because you're a hamstring mm -hmm. and you don't want that just to come out of blue out of the blue i'd want to show that earlier in the story build, and you'd be yeah. like you know my hamstring kind of is tight i hope that doesn't come back to haunt me we want to build some dramatic tension yeah. so i mean this these are the things you're thinking about when you're trying to document a race it, it, it and it is a distraction right yeah. you have now you have two <laughs> projects going yeah. for me though i find it's a it's a healthy distraction it can help me take take me out of that you know, I can hover above myself and the pain becomes part of the story I'm trying to tell. I like that, that perspective, yeah. Right? So, it, so it, it, I actually find it helps me get through these moments. And I just enjoy the storytelling process so much that when I do have a bad race, again, I can flip the script and say like, well, hey, 
I guess this story is about how I blew up. Yeah. You know? Well, it's, you know, it almost puts you in the, uh, the storyteller position where you're telling the narrative of your own story. So it's like, do yeah. you want this story to end in a DNF or are you going to find a way to fight through this? And that there you not go. only makes for a great video, but it, you know, it puts you and in either the, way. It's a great story. Exactly. Right? Whether, it, whether it I rally in the, or uh, not. Controller so. seat. Exactly. There you go. One thing I wanted to get your thoughts on was, uh, you know, because I don't know if you've had a lot of experience of doing this in the past, but I know following a lot of your training diaries uh, last year was strength training. And I know you did this with a yeah. uh, personal trainer, but, you know, what are your thoughts with strength training with runners? Because a lot of times, um, you know, some people are adverse to it. Uh, I know I, I'm sure you're familiar with Jason Coop. Yeah. Yeah. So he's very sciencey guy. He's still kind of anti strength training or know, isn't like super big into it. Uh, but then yeah. there's, you know, a lot of people like uh, Sally McRae, you know, is a you know, big advocate of it. <laughs> Sally so. is huge on it. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. It really is split. Um, the the evidence seems to suggest it's less important than we think. But yeah. anecdotally, a lot of us would tell you otherwise. I so I um, I've sort of done a little bit of strength training here and there over the years because mm -hmm. coaches told me I should and. Um, but the, the thinking is that it helps to, um, the theory is that it helps to avoid some of the imbalances that we, that we, yes. we create as mm -hmm. runners. We, we tend to be very hamstring dominated. We tend to have weak glutes. Mm -hmm. It creates imbalances. Imbalances can lead to injury. Now that's hard to study over a long term. How do you mm -hmm. study uh, over a career, say runners who don't strength train versus others while controlling for all these personal factors like genetics and mm -hmm. environment. So I think that's one reason why the. I would argue why the science hasn't yet supported it. Yeah. But then anecdotally, there's examples of people not strength training with huge success, like Killian Jornet, the greatest mountain runner ever to yeah, live, exactly. doesn't do strength training. But having said that, he's still pretty young. Like well, he's, I think, anecdotes early are 30s. tough too because you know if you look at like Courtney Dowalter, right, never has a coach, kind of just yeah. goes by the uh, the seat of her pants, you know, things like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. those are uh, you know strange cases, but that's why they're they're winners, I guess, right? Well, and Killian, like I always kind of joke, like I bet you when he turns forty and starts to get injured, he's going to start train tra strength training. Yeah. So I would say, like, I mean, for me, I'm 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 turning forty two this year, so mm -hmm. I, I consider myself an older athlete at this point and an aging athlete, at least let's say. And so for, for me, strength training is about keeping myself in the game. Like I've got mm -hmm. big goals over the coming decade. And for me to keep doing the amount of mileage and travel and all the stuff that I'm doing, putting these demands on my body, mm -hmm. I feel like I just need to strength train to mitigate those risks. It's not, it's not necessarily about getting faster. It's exactly. just about staying and staying in it. And then of course, though, there are benefits to strength training for getting faster. Um, but I think that uh, one thing I would sort of say though, is that, um, you know, I think the philosophy I try to follow is that strength should never get in the way of your running. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're strength training to run, you should never do like a hard strength training session the day before doing a speed work session where you're mm -hmm. then going to jeopardize your ability to maximize that speed work session. Mm -hmm. uh, it should support your running and not the other way around. If again, if running is your primary goal. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think maybe some people you know, approach it more like strength, they're going to strength train to run. Mm -hmm. And that's not it. That's not it. It's, 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 it's a side thing. Yeah. Uh, but it is an important side thing. So for me, I, I um, pulled, I, I strained my hamstring. I tore my hamstring, I should say two years ago, leading into my 2021 season. And I had some imbalances. I'm not sure exactly what caused it. It was a sudden thing during a run and it put me out for weeks. Mm -hmm. I was, I couldn't even walk for the first couple of weeks. And yeah. I had to, I've, I've Partially torn mine before. Run. I feel it. Yeah. Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible, right? Like yeah. I, had a, I had a grade two hamstring and they say grade three, you need surgery. So it's like, it was bad, right? Um, and so 
when I came back from that, I knew I had to strengthen it just to just to, just to rehab be able to it. run yeah. again. Mm-hmm. Just to rehab it. Yeah, exactly. I went to physio. I started working with a strength trainer. And that's what set me back on the path of consistent strength training because I had just turned 40 or I was 39. And I realized, okay, I, I should just keep doing this. This is yeah. something I should and can keep doing at my age. So again, I think it's, I don't know. I'd say if you're pushing 40 and you, and you especially if you're injury prone, yeah. do two days a week of strength training. I mean, do yourself a favor. Um, if you want to look at the, the data, the science, well, no, it doesn't necessarily support it. And there's certainly anecdotal evidence to support, to suggest that it's not important. But, mm-hmm. uh, in my experience, it's been huge. I came back from my injury without a hint of hamstring issue after that. And I've gone on to have a injury free two seasons now. Yeah. Um, and I feel, I just feel good. Like I just feel good when I can, you know, I can lift something with, you know, a little bit of upper body strength exactly. and I can, I can, I can run with a 20 pound pack. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's just, um, I, I think, uh, I think strength training is both underrated and overrated. If yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. I think, I think, I think moderate amount of strength training is really important for any runner. Yeah. For runners, I think you should look at it from two perspectives is like the idea of like maintenance. And like you said, uh, mm-hmm. kind of that, you know, preventative, uh, caution for injuries and just making sure that everything is, is working how it should. And it, it kind of gives you some cognization too of, you know, your hamstrings working, your glutes working. And so that, you know, when they aren't working or, you know, when something's sore and how to mediate certain things. And then the biggest thing is injury, injury prevention. You know, there are, like you said, you know, some people might get some performance benefits of it. Um, especially if you're doing some real steep uh, terrain, you know, you might really want to strengthen your quads and glutes and so forth. But the injury prevention to me is just so clear that, uh, you know, maybe exact runners might be tough, difficult to study, like you said, over time, but just thinking about bone density, right? A lot of strength training, especially as you get older, as you mentioned into your forties, but even earlier, uh, building up strong, healthy bones, strong, healthy joints, you're only going to get that through strength training and weight bearing and things of that nature. So, uh, to mm-hmm. me, it's kind of like a no-brainer, but like, like you said, it doesn't have to be, you know, a bodybuilder workout, workout, a powerlifting workout, no. hard leg days. Honestly, you know, it's funny too, because like, if you just think about general health, what is what is like the the minimal benefit to get benefits from strength training? It's minimal stuff. It's really lightweight. It's like a ten-pound kettlebell, probably just do a couple yeah. exercises a week. So if you take that principle and apply it to running you don't have to do these full workouts. You could literally just do two 30-minute workouts with a 20-pound kettlebell, some really light stuff. You probably barely break a sweat, but you're still going to get a lot of the benefits that you know you would be neglecting if you didn't do anything at all. So I'm glad you uh, have that same experience. Yeah, and sometimes it's about mobility. It's about body yeah, mobility as well as much as strength. And so there's, yeah. you know, I, I I work with a personal trainer, and um, you definitely don't have to. Um, mm-hmm. I can afford to, and so I figure, why not give myself, of course, you know, every edge I can. And I just love showing up and just not having to think. Like I just yeah. tell me what to do, and I'll do the work. I'll work hard. Yeah. Right? If somebody that is there to hold me accountable, um, and also I have to book those sessions in advance, which for me is important. Otherwise, strength training, yeah. I put it off. Mm-hmm. I got to book these weeks in advance, so I'm committed. But sometimes I'll show up and I'll say, look, I just did, um, you know, I've got a race coming up or I just did a hard session yesterday. I'm pretty sore and I'll notice it mm-hmm. when I'm warming up and go, okay, look, my, my left hamstring's feeling a bit tight. Let's let's do some mobility work, work maybe. around and it. And yeah. my coach will work me through that. So sometimes it's, it's you know, your strength session can be the time for you to check in with your body and to yeah. do maybe one day more mobility, less strength and so it's kind of just, it's the foundation, you know, it's that foundational stuff. But again, you don't want it to negatively impact your, your running either. So, um, it can, you know, you have to be careful. You, you don't want to hurt yourself in the gym either. So, yeah. so sometimes less is more for sure. Absolutely. 
to wrap things up, you kind of touched on a few items throughout, you know, our, our chat together. But what's next for you as far as next year, um, you know, especially with it being like the new year, maybe it's a great chance to talk about resolutions in a sense. But, you know, there's specific uh, more than just races like what, you know, what are some specific goals or things you'd like to accomplish? It could be, you know, certain objectives with your YouTube channel or, or yeah. how you'd like to position, you know, work life balance. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, I mean, I mean, this this project I have in England next year is kind of a new thing for me, where mm-hmm. I, I want to immerse myself in, the in these experiences maybe, yeah. a bit yeah. more. Where where I, I want to, you know, I'm going to go there, I'm going to live there, I want to meet people mm-hmm. and like exist in that running community for a month and, mm-hmm. and accomplish this big goal. I don't want to just fly in for a race and leave. And I think that's the direction I'd like, I'd like to go in with my life and traveling and um, you know with Audrey mm-hmm. is us kind of moving places and saying let's go to say south africa and yeah. just like let's do comrades and a let's, let's, let's just experience world. it all right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then maybe say okay we've kind of now experienced that let's move on to the next thing but mm-hmm. really immerse ourselves in these things and i think that'll make for better storytelling as well i want my my films to become more like travel documentaries um you know again not just about the race but mm-hmm. about everything that leads up to it and um but i think again more more less racing i think long term and more adventures i yeah. got this long list of fast packing i want to do i want to all these all these routes i want to do nolan's 14 in colorado um yeah i've got long term goals like racing mm-hmm. hard rock but to me doing like nolan's or doing the bob graham round is so much more exciting yeah um so so that's something that you know i'm hoping to check out check more of those off my list um i am though looking to do a 200 miler again next year that's probably gonna be my a goal and mm-hmm. i'm just trying to decide which one but um i haven't done a 200 plus mile race for a few years and i think it's ready to i'm ready to tackle that get back again into that yeah <laughs> um, get back into that so and then yeah i, I really just want to keep growing my youtube channel i yeah. um uh I'm, i've been seeing some success i think um you know, I, I like to think that, like you said, I have some untapped potential on the channel where, um, you know, if, if more people were, could be exposed to it, I, I, I could grow a bit more. And um, so probably one way I'll do that is with some collaborations with other creators. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to probably work with Ben Parks when I go to yeah. England, for example, maybe meet up with him. And um, I know that's that's a that's a, a good strategy to grow and um, and maybe mix it up a little bit, too, by working with other collaborators. So that's yeah. sort of something I'm looking at for next year. A lot of times I feel like, uh, well... In your example uh, specifically, the content, the quality, it's obviously there. The consistency, it's all there. Uh, but a lot of times, unfortunately, with whether it's TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, whatever it is, you got to play the trends a little bit. You got to put in, you know, yeah. searchable keywords and you know, clickbaity titles in some sense. But I do feel like at the end of the day, um, the true gems eventually. Uh, emerge to the top, ascend to the top, and people will eventually find them. And collaborating is a, is a very genuine, honest, and, and valuable way to, to accomplish both, I think, in that sense. So that makes sense. Yeah, and I, I really am. I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence about the strategy, but I'm, I'm about to commit, I think, to this idea of making uh, less, less content, but better content, but also more focused on the stories and less yeah. on the, like you said, the clickbait stuff. I think which, that'll pay off. Yes, that's the formula, but it's not as rewarding for me. And I exactly. want people to... Yeah. I want people to be inspired. Um, I don't want to just, you know, be pushing Amazon affiliate links. And um, mm-hmm. but the funny thing is, like when I was doing UTMB, I had I think at least I don't know three or four people say, "Hey, you're Jeff. I bought this headlamp because of you." Oh, really? That's <laughs> like funny. things like that, where you yeah. know they they knew me from my <laughs> reviews and stuff. So again, it, it works. But my my kind of philosophy, I think, going into this year is going to be for my channel is mm-hmm. going to be 
that I want to make every video be something that Proud everyone would, would watch. Oh, okay, so yeah. I'm, I want to think of my audience as one person. And I want every video. I don't want it to be that you, ah, I like his reviews, but not his films or his films, gotcha. but not his reviews. I want to make, I want it, I want it to be that when you subscribe, you're looking forward to every video I, I, I publish. Yeah. And that probably means doing less of the technical review stuff, less mm-hmm. of the top three reasons why or the seven yeah. tips for, and really just focusing on high quality content. Cause I think that's, uh, that's the evergreen stuff. That's the stuff mm-hmm. that like, you know, 10 years from now, hopefully will still be exist on the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the stuff that I end up feeling really proud of. Um, and it sort of serves as a, uh, I don't know. It's like a diary for myself. It's something yeah. I can look back on years yeah. from now. Yeah. You you're kind of building your own yeah, portfolio. Yeah. Totally. I like that. Totally. It's just, yeah. So where can people find you? Well, uh, best places on YouTube. If you search for Jeff Peltier, um, you can Spell go to jeffpeltier.com. Right. <laughs> yeah. P E L L E T I E R. Um, and on Instagram, I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram as well. J Peltier. Um, so yeah, Instagram and YouTube. Are the two best places. Awesome. Well, go check him out. Like I said, I highly, highly, highly recommend uh, any of the films, basically, that he has on his YouTube channel. And obviously, stay in touch on Instagram as well. Um, share the podcast if you guys enjoyed it. And I will catch you guys in the next one.